Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 106, Mail Order Bride. In this episode, Amunhotep III reaches the pinnacle of his earthly power. Winning a major diplomatic victory, he gains a new bride from foreign lands. Meanwhile, Queen T achieves new heights as well, meaningful public equality with her husband, displayed at different ends of the land. This episode is brought to you by all the guests who joined me on the first History of Egypt podcast tour. I'm pleased to report the tour was a great success, and we had a wonderful time exploring the treasures and sites of the Nile Valley. In gratitude for their participation, this episode is dedicated to Hari, Sri Lakshmi, Alan, Angela, Travis, Jessica, Patrick, Anne, Linda, Janie, Christopher, Skip, Joan, and last but not least, Lane. Thank you all for joining. May Neb Ma'at Rey, the Sun King who rules all lands, bless your year to come. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me, and please enjoy the show. Also, if you have any interest in joining a tour to Egypt, keep an eye on your podcast feed. I'll be announcing the second one relatively soon. Now then, on with the story. The year was 1366 BCE, approximately. The Nile Valley basked in the glow of Neb Ma'at Rey Amunhotep III, King of Upper and Lower Egypt and living incarnation of the Sun God. He was at the pinnacle of his earthly power. From southern Nubia to the limits of Syria, Pharaoh ruled all and the world bowed before him. By regnal year 34, Amunhotep was approximately 46 years old. He lived mainly in Waset, Thebes, at the palace we call Malkata. Here, in the dry climate, the aging pharaoh could enjoy leisure activities, while his servants governed a vast empire on his behalf. Little did he know, events far away were soon to come knocking at his door. Our story today begins far away from Egypt, in the Kingdom of Mitanni, located in northern Mesopotamia. Mitanni was one of the Near East's great powers. Its mighty charioteers, called Marianu, led a warrior caste that dominated the fertile plains between and around the great rivers. Its kings were influential, holding sway from modern Kurdistan in the east to the shores of the Mediterranean in the west. Throughout this region, the kingdom of Mitanni, called Naharina in Egyptian, was a mighty force. Or at least, 
it had been. By 1366 BCE, Mitanni's influence was waning. Foreign wars and internal conflicts had weakened the state considerably. In fact, two of their recent kings had been outright murdered in quick succession. First, a great lord called Shutarna II was cruelly slain and replaced with his own brother. This was a serious blow. Shutana had been an influential ruler who had even sent his daughter to marry the pharaoh Amunhotep III. Still, he fell to assassins' blades, and Shutana's own brother, a man named Atta Shumara, had taken the throne in his place. But what do you know? Atta Shumara's reign was equally short. Within a few years, he too was murdered, and the throne passed to a child. Soon, Power was in the hands of Shutana II's son, a boy named Tushrata. Tushrata was young when he ascended, and for the first 16 years of his reign, the kingdom was led by a cabal of influential courtiers, the same men who had conspired to murder his father and his uncle, one after the other. Tushrata, unfortunately, could do nothing. Lacking influence, he had to bide his time and wait an opportunity to assert authority on his own. That day eventually came, and this, dear listener, is where our story begins. Around the age of 25 or so, maybe older, maybe younger, Tushrata was strong enough to act. He arrested and then executed all the officials that had been involved in his father's murder, and he then took power on his own initiative. Living in a turbulent court and unpracticed in the art of soul rule, Tushrata began to seek friends to secure his position. The first friend he turned to was Egypt. Somewhere around year 30 of Amunhotep III, or a bit later, Tushrata wrote a letter to the pharaoh. The king of Mitanni wanted to renew the bonds of friendship that had once bound Egypt and Mitanni. Decades after his older sister, Gilu Kepa, had visited the pharaoh to become his wife, Toshrata sought to reaffirm that old alliance and to forge new ties. To do this, he was willing to beg. Remarkably, Toshrata's communication with Amunhotep III survives today, along with several others from correspondence which passed between Egypt and the great powers of the Near East. From these letters, written in ancient cuneiform on tablets of baked clay, we can see how great powers communicated and renewed or negotiated their friendship. For the next few minutes, let's dive into the correspondence of Tushrata, king of Mitanni, and Amunhotep, king of Egypt. Tushrata wrote to Amunhotep in order to reopen communications that had lapsed for some time. To begin with, of course, the king started with formalities. He addressed the king of Egypt, whom he called Nib-Muraya. This is a metanization of Neb-Ma'at-Re, Amunhotep's throne name, and the one by which the world knew him. Tushrata wrote to Nib-Muraya, and sought to know his condition. Quote, Say to Nib-Muraya, king of Egypt and my brother, so speaks Tushrata, the king of Mitanni, your brother. For me, all goes well. For you, may all go well also. For Gilu Kepa, my sister, may all go well. 
for your household, for your wives, for your sons, your magnates, your warriors, your horses, your chariots, and all in your country. May all go very well. End quote. The formalities begin, and Toshrata is polite and well-wishing. He inquires after his sister, who went to Egypt long before he even took the throne, and he sends goodwill to all in Amunhotep's kingdom. This may seem like fluff, but it's important. It re-establishes the foundations of Mitanni and Egypt's friendship, things like the diplomatic marriages and the communications between their courtiers. It also makes clear that Toshrata is writing as a friend. With that out of the way, the king of Mitanni gets to his true purpose. Quote, When I first sat upon the throne of my father, I was young, and a traitorous official named Udhi had done an unseemly thing to my country. Udhi had slain his lord. For this reason, Udhi would not permit me friendship with anyone who loved me. I, in turn, was not remiss about the unseemly things that had been done in my land. Eventually, I slew the slayers of Atashumara, my brother, and everyone belonging to them. You, Nibmuraya, were friendly with my father, so I have written and told you these things, so that the pharaoh, my brother, might hear and rejoice. My father, Shutana, loved you, and you, in turn, loved my father. In keeping with this love, my father gave you my sister, Gilukepa, and who else stood alongside my father as you did? End quote. Toshrata starts with the all-important confirmations of friendship, the love that his father bore for Amonhotep, and which the pharaoh reciprocated. Toshrata reassures the Egyptians that he would have made contact years ago, but his advisers, the same traitors who had murdered his father and his uncle, had conspired to keep Toshrata from maintaining any alliances. They had isolated Toshrata and weakened the kingdom of Mitanni, just so that they could maintain power and control over the land. Disgusting. Anyway, Toshrata is better now. He has overthrown the traitors, executed them, and begun to review the friendships which his father had maintained while alive. Of course, there was no friendship greater than the one between Mitanni and Egypt. Shutarna II and Amunhotep had been the best of brothers. They supported one another, and their fraternal love was beyond estimation. With that reminder, Toshrata finally gets to his point. Quote, I herewith send you one chariot, two horses, one male attendant, one female attendant. This comes from the booty that I took from the land of the Hittites. As the greeting gift for my brother, I also send you five chariots and five teams of horses. As the greeting gift for Gilu Kepa, my sister, I send to her one set of gold toggle pins, and one set of gold earrings, and one gold mushu ring. Also, a perfume container that is full of sweet oil. May my brother seek friendship with me, and may my brother send his messengers to me, so that they may bring my brother's greetings to me, and I hear them. End quote. Ah, it's been a while since we had some good, honest diplomacy. Pharaoh has been so powerful, his empire so peaceful, that we haven't had to deal with foreign troubles for quite some time. Well, peace doesn't last forever it's time for the Egyptians to return to the game. 
Toshrata sent jewellery and perfume for his royal sister, Gilu Kepa, wife of the pharaoh of Egypt. He also sent gifts for pharaoh himself, prize war horses and chariots, the ancient equivalent of a Ferrari and a couple of tanks. Not bad for a starting offer. Unsurprisingly though, pharaoh wanted more. Amunhotep apparently wrote back to Tushrata. Presumably, he thanked him for the gifts and expressed a willingness to renew the alliance which had existed with Tushrata's father, the late Shatana II. But of course, it had been many years. The alliance would need something more to be established like the old days. If Tushrata would listen, Pharaoh had an idea. The original alliance was sealed with a marriage between Amunhotep and Gilu Kappa. Perhaps, all things considered, it was appropriate to seal a new one with another marriage. If King Tushrata wanted to ally with Egypt, he should send another princess to Pharaoh's court. She could marry Amunhotep and confirm a new alliance between the great kingdoms. Say what now? Not content with one Mitanni princess, Amunhotep demanded a second. By ancient logic, this probably made perfect sense. 3,000 plus years later, it seems a bit greedy. But before we go judging, we must remember, Amunhotep had no experience of this new king. All of his trust and his reliance had been in Shutarna, and that was 16 plus years ago. Who was Tushrata but a stranger? If the king of Mitanni wanted an alliance, he needed to demonstrate his commitment to that bond. A daughter would make the two men family, and family alone could be trusted in such delicate matters. Of course, Pharaoh was not demanding a princess and offering nothing in return. He was quite happy to pay, both a dowry for her and additional treasure for Tushrata himself. To secure the hand of Mitanni's princess, Amunhotep offered that which Egypt gave best. Gold. Unfortunately, the letters which Amunhotep sent back to Mitanni do not survive. It seems like they didn't keep a copy of those ones. But we have Tushrata's reply to what Amunhotep said. And, thankfully, Tushrata essentially repeats what the king had said. So we get an idea of what Amunhotep was offering. Quote, Say to Namuria, the great king, the king of Egypt, my brother, my son-in-law, who loves me and whom I love. Message of Tushrata, great king, your father-in-law, who loves you, the king of Matani, your brother. For me, all goes well. For you, may all go well. And he does the same thing again with all the names, blah blah blah. As far back as the time of your ancestors, they always showed love to my ancestors. You yourself went even further, and showed very great love to my father. Now, in keeping with our constant and mutual love, you have made it ten times greater than the love shown my father. May the gods grant it, and may Teshup, my lord, and Arman make it flourish for evermore, just as it is now, this mutual love of ours. When my brother sent his messenger back, saying, Send your daughter to be my wife and the mistress of Egypt. I caused my brother no distress, and immediately I said, Of course we'll do that. The one whom my brother requested, I showed to his messenger. When he saw her, he praised her greatly. 
I will lead this princess in safety to my brother's country. May Shaushka and Aman make her the image of my brother's desire. When I wrote to my brother, I said, Let us love each other very, very much, and between us let there be friendship. I also asked my brother for much gold, saying, May my brother grant me more than he did to my father, and send it to me. You send my father a great quantity of gold. You send him large gold jars and gold jugs. You send him gold bricks, as if they were just the equivalent of copper. Now that my brother has sent that gold, I say, it may be little or not, not a little, but much. Still, the gold you have sent has been worked and manufactured. But although it has been worked, I rejoiced over it greatly, and whatever it was that my brother sent, I am happy about it. End quote. That was kind of a long passage, so let me break it down. The basic gist is that Amunhotep sent his reply, saying, Give me a princess. His messenger also brought a quantity of gold to give to the Mitanni king. The problem was that they brought gold that had been manufactured, turned into jewellery and jugs and things like that. Of course, Tushrata was very grateful for the gold. It was magnificent. But he needed something a bit more practical. The king of Mitanni politely rejected Amunhotep's first offer. Golden treasures were great, but Tushrata was a living monarch, and he had living needs. In response to the original letter, Tushrata requested that Amunhotep send cold, hard cash. Quote, I now hereby write to my brother, and may my brother show me much more love than he did to my father. I hereby ask for gold from my brother, and the gold that I ask for is meant for a double purpose. One for the mausoleum of my father, and the other for the bride dowry. May my brother send me, in very great quantities, gold that has not been worked or manufactured. And may my brother send me much more gold than he did to my father. In my brother's country, Egypt, gold is as plentiful as dirt. May the gods grant that, just as now gold is plentiful, he make it even ten times more plentiful than now. May the gold that I ask for not become a source of distress to my brother, and may my brother not cause me distress. May my brother send me in very large quantities gold that has not been manufactured. Whatever my brother needs for his house, let him write and take it. I will give that ten times more than what my brother asks for. This country is my brother's country, and this house is my brother's house. End quote. Essentially, golden trinkets, although lovely, were not quite good enough. Tushrata wanted bullion, straight-up bricks of gold. That might seem greedy, but there's probably a background logic here. Let me explain real quickly. By 1366 BCE or so, the kingdom of Mitanni was under great pressure from foreign powers. Assyrians in the east, Babylonians in the south, and particularly Hittites in the north, were pressing in on Mitanni lands. They plundered cities, raided pasture lands, and took common folk off into captivity. On every side, the Mitanni kingdom was under threat, and Tushrata had to defend it. The request for pure gold makes sense when we consider Tushrata's situation. Gold was a useful commodity in diplomacy and war. 
With enough bullion, Toshrata could pay tribute to marauding enemies and pay them to go away. Or he could recruit and equip warriors that he would need to fight back. This was not the time for trinkets or baubles. This was a time of war, and war needs resources. So it's entirely possible that Tushrata was arranging this alliance in some desperation. And in that desperation, he had to beg the pharaoh for more mundane gifts than might normally be the standard. How did Amunhotep respond to this request? We don't know exactly, but the king of Egypt seems to have accepted the offer, because he immediately sent more gold to Mitanni to pay the necessary price. Unfortunately, he didn't send much, or at least he didn't send enough for the kind of alliance under discussion. Whether Amunhotep was being stingy, or Tushrata was being demanding, we have no idea. But what is clear is that the pharaoh sent some gold, or at least he promised to send more. In the last of the negotiating letters, Tushrata is reaching satisfaction, but he's not quite there yet, he just needs a little bit more to finalise the deal. Quote, My brother's messenger came to take his wife, Tadu Kepa, the promised princess, to become the mistress of Egypt. I read and reread the tablet that the messenger brought to me, and I listened to its words. Very pleasing indeed were the words of my brother. I rejoiced on that day as if I had seen my brother in person. Within six months, I will send my messenger, and I will deliver my brother's wife. They will bring his wife to my brother, and when they show her, he will note this, that she has become very mature, and she has been fashioned according to my brother's desire. Furthermore, my brother will note that the greeting gift I present is greater than any before. In return, may my brother send me much gold that has not been worked, and may my brother treat me even better than he did my father. Forever will I do what my brother wants, and my brother shall do what I want. Just as men love the sun, so may we now, God's willing, forever maintain love in our hearts. End quote. Toshrata accepted the offer. He promised to send his daughter, Tadu Kepa, as a bride for the pharaoh of Egypt. But, and this was a big but, she would only travel if, before her departure, Pharaoh sent a more substantial gift of gold. Presumably, this was an all-or-nothing gamble. Toshrata needed the alliance, but he needed the gold as well. As a result, the marriage hinged on Amunhotep accepting a bit of friendly extortion. I have to say, I wouldn't want to be caught haggling with Toshrata. He comes across as a man who drives a hard bargain. Whether that's true, it seems to have worked. The next time we hear of correspondence between the two kingdoms, it is a couple of years later, and Toshrata makes a point of sending good wishes to Tadu Kepa. Apparently, Amunhotep III accepted the demands of his distant ally, and a new marriage sealed the friendship of Egypt and Mitanni. It was a good day for Egypt, Sadly, the Mitanni kingdom was in a worse state than anyone knew. It would be destroyed entirely within less than a century. The alliance between Egypt and Mitanni gave temporary security to Tashrata. 
For Amenhotep III, it was perhaps business as usual, another round of the constant correspondence which connected his kingdom with the wider world. As we'll see in the coming episodes, those communications spread across many different lands. When Tadu Kepa arrived at the Egyptian court, she would have been in a similar situation to the one her aunt faced some 18 years before. Princess Gilu Kepa had come to Egypt in year 13 in order to marry the pharaoh. Now, Tadu Kepa repeated that pattern. When Gilu Kepa arrived, she found herself facing a formidable pair of royal women, a matriarch and a young queen. Back then, the matriarch was Mut M. Weir, mother of Amonhotep and unofficial regent during his childhood. The queen, meanwhile, was T, all of 23 or so. The mother overshadowed the daughter, but both outranked Gilu Kepa. Now, Tadu Kepa found herself in a similar situation. Coming to the palace, she came face to face with a powerful matriarch and a young queen. Of course, by now, the roles had changed. Tadu Kepa arrived in Egypt when Queen T was nearing the very height of her earthly authority. Now, she was the matriarch, ruling Egypt with style and influence. The minor queen, meanwhile, was one Sit Amun. Sit Amun, daughter of T and Amunhotep, was officially a great royal wife. In theory, she held equal status with T. But in practice, she was probably a secondary wife at best. More ceremonial than real, Sit Amun's power was a pale candle next to T's blazing sun. Still, Sit Amun certainly outranked Tadu Kepa. So when the Mitanni princess arrived, she found herself up against two formidable Egyptian queens. I hope that her aunt, Gilu Kepa, helped her adjust to the new surroundings. It must have been intimidating. Tadu Kepa's story is a curious one, and there is one more question about her that is worth asking. I'll return to that in the epilogue. For now, let's move on to chapter 2, a look at the magnificent Queen T and her visible power in the Nile Valley. That's chapter 2, after a quick break. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. A Mitanni princess came to court, and the Queen of Egypt entertained yet another female member of the harem. The mighty Queen T, now about 44 years old, had seen a thing or two. 
the endless procession of women who came to her husband's palace and bed were part and parcel of the arrangement. But T herself, well, she was on a whole other level from these upstart young fancies. She was the boss. As we round out this episode, I'd like to take a quick look at some of the best evidence for T's monumental authority in the Nile Valley. It takes the form of two monuments, statues, and opposite ends of the country. Viewed together, these magnificent images are a fitting legacy for Egypt's most powerful female ruler. If you go to the museum in Cairo, by which I mean the old museum, you will find the entrance hall dominated by a truly colossal statue. It's made of limestone, and it depicts King Amunhotep III and Queen T seated side by side. By their knees, three smaller figures, daughters, complete the picture. This statue is 7 metres tall, 23 feet, approximately five times the size of the people it depicts. It towers over visitors to the museum, and once upon a time, it towered over passers-by at the mortuary temple in Thebes. This colossal dyad statue, dyad meaning two-person, was originally set up in the southern wall of Amunhotep's mortuary temple. It was discovered there in many pieces over several decades. Most recently, new pieces turned up and allowed archaeologists to restore it even further. Today, about 70% of the statue survives. Further conservation may see that number rise even more. Located in the south wall of the mortuary temple, the dyad of Amunhotep and T was a visible reminder of the couple's power and influence in Thebes. Remember, the average Egyptian only saw the high mud-brick wall and the grand statues which guarded the pylons. At the eastern gate, the colossi of Memnon displayed Amunhotep's might. At the southern gate, the dyad displayed the power of the royal couple. What's most important about this statue is how the pair are depicted. Amunhotep and T appear as the same size. In other words, they are shown as equals. Equals in stature, equals in rule. It's a clear statement of intent. As the pharaoh reached the apex of his power, his great royal wife was his equal in all things. Talk about a power move. The colossal dyad was probably erected somewhere around the time of the first or second Sed festival. How do we know that? Well, two things give it away. Firstly, the facial features of the king show that youthful idealism which he started to strive for in his fourth decade of power. As the king aged, and also promoted himself as a divine being, the art style changed subtly to emphasise certain features. Almond-shaped eyes, chubby cheeks, full lips, the king pushed for a particular look. That comes across in the statue. The other feature of the dyad which reveals its date is which daughters appear on the bottom beside the royal couple's legs. More specifically, we can date it according to which daughter doesn't appear. The eldest daughter, Sit Amun, is not shown on this image. We see three of her sisters, younger daughters, but not Sit Amun herself. Why? Well, as of year 30, Sit Amun was no longer officially a daughter of Amunhotep. Now she was his wife. 
Sit Amun had ascended to the rank of great royal wife on the occasion of the first said festival, so it wouldn't be appropriate to put her among the daughters. For one thing, it would be insulting to lower her status like that, and also to make her tiny and insignificant. On the other hand, it would insult T to show Sit Amun sitting beside Amunhotep. So to avoid any inconvenient problems, Sit Amun is simply absent, a quiet solution to a visible problem. You have to wonder what Sit Amun's exact relationship with her parents was now that she was less of a daughter and more of a symbolic equal. We don't hear much about her after her promotion, but it's an interesting question. I hope more information comes to light. Sit Amun is one of my favourite question marks in this period. Anyway, the Colossal Dyad is a beautiful piece, both for its manufacture and the fact that it shows the king and queen as public equals. The feminist within me appreciates the gesture, and the lowly peasant in me is always overawed by T's obvious influence and political power. She had now gone beyond any woman before her, except maybe Hatshepsut, in terms of stamping her name on the age. Quite simply, T was boss. Several hundred kilometres to the north, T's image endured in another place. Down in the eastern delta, there is a town which we haven't visited yet, but we probably should have. You see, this little community on the edge of the greenery is a place dedicated to one of the most famous gods in the pantheon. I'm talking about a town called Bubastus, aka Per Bast, aka the House of Bastet. At this small community, Delta folk worshipped one of Egypt's most venerable goddesses, Bastet the Cat Lady. Let's explore. Bastet, or She of Bubastus, was a powerful deity, with a cult dating back to the Old Kingdom at least. Khafre, who built the Second Pyramid of Giza around 2550 BCE, called himself Beloved of Bastet, and he may have built a shrine in Bubastus. Sahure, who sent the first ships to Punt around 2480 BCE, made offerings to Bastet, mistress of the two lands in all their places. Finally, Pepi I erected the earliest surviving temple at Bubastus, a structure that was buried later on, preserving it for archaeology. Essentially, the temple city of Bastet goes right back to the 4th dynasty, and probably earlier. Bastet was a great and venerable deity. Amunhotep III and Queen T made contributions to the temple of Bastet. This probably took the form of statues, and maybe a shrine and bark as well. Unfortunately, the site of Bubastus is in ruins, and most of the surviving pieces are from later periods. One thing that does survive, though, is a towering statue near to the ancient temple. This statue takes the form of a woman, and it is quite likely to depict tea. The statue shows a tall lady in the 18th dynasty style. She stands with her left foot forward, and her left hand holds a scepter across her chest. On her head, an enormous wig fans out over her shoulders and down to her breasts. In design, it is practically identical to other images of the queen. So it is quite possibly tea, we're just not certain. The statue was found in pieces and reconstructed. 
Unfortunately, the inscriptions are too damaged to permit proper identification. Hopefully one day we'll get certainty. For now, I'm willing to put some gold down on the statue showing tea. The enormous image may be part of a larger royal expansion at Bubastus, or maybe T gave it by herself. By this point, the queen was phenomenally influential in the realm, an equal to her husband, and certainly capable of arranging something like this. Perhaps T had an affinity for Bastet. Maybe she wanted to promote her name and her husband by association. Whatever the cause, this lone sentinel is a quiet testament to splendid and intriguing times. By 1366 BCE, Amunhotep III and Queen Ti were names synonymous with wealth and authority. From the furthest reaches of the known world, foreign kings begged for a taste of Egypt's fabulous riches. In exchange, they sent their valued daughters to become wives, princesses of the land. The tale of Tadu Kepa, the male order Mitanni bride, is a fascinating one. It's not unique by any stretch, but it is uniquely well documented. Thanks to the survival of those letters, we get a glimpse at ancient diplomacy and the intricacies of, well, selling one's daughter to gain a bit of security at home. Of course, the Mitanni did not invent that practice, and they certainly were not the last to do it. But how rare it is in the Bronze Age to see such a process play out step by step in written sources. I love it. At home, the monuments of Queen T testify to the continually rising power of this formidable woman. From a child bride 30 years previously, she had grown into a political powerhouse, the equal of her husband. She was a living incarnation of Hathor, or Sakmet on a bad day. Queen T was going from strength to strength, even as her husband passed his apex. This pattern would continue for the next few years. As Amunhotep slowly waned, tea continued to wax. The Queen of Egypt was a power unlike any seen before. On the next episode, we enter the very last phase of Amunhotep III's reign. The sun is past its zenith and making its way towards the horizon. We'll see how Pharaoh prepared for his inevitable mortality, and the ways he may have looked back as the last days of his rule began. Looking back on the History of Egypt podcast, coming soon. Meanwhile, stick around for a curious epilogue. You see, as Amunhotep's latest bride, the Mitanni princess Tadu Kepa, came to Egypt, a most fascinating story might have started. There are questions about this princess. Not about who she was, but about whom she may have become. Suffice to say, it is a curious question indeed. That's the epilogue after the music. So the princess Tadu Kepa came to Egypt and was received with due ceremony. She entered the royal harem and became part of Amunhotep's vast gathering of women, the beautiful ladies who waited on his pleasure. 
After her arrival, Tadu Kaper mostly vanishes from the record, disappearing into the mysteries of the court and the harem. We don't hear about her again, except in letters from Tushrata inquiring after her health. It's a strange situation, but before we move on, I will note one interesting hypothesis that has cropped up in Egyptology. You see, there is a possibility that Tadu Kepa is recorded, just by a different name. Let me explain. Egyptologist Joyce Tildesley has suggested that Tadu Kepa came to Egypt, married Amunhotep III, and then entered his court. But when the king died a couple of years later, Tadu Kepa remained, and she may have married his son, the new Amunhotep IV. When she did so, the theory suggests, Tadu Kepa may have taken on a new name, a name that reflected her beauty, and also the long journey she had taken to join the Egyptian court. In this scenario, Tadu Kepa may have renamed herself something like the beautiful one who has come. In Egyptian, this name is Nofret Iti. We pronounce it Nefertiti. According to Joyce Tildesley, it is possible that the famous Nefertiti is none other than Tadu Kepa, Princess of Mitanni. Working backwards from Nefertiti's sudden appearance and unexplained origins, combined with the known appearance and unexplained vanishing of Tadu Kepa, Tildesley suggests the two women might be one and the same. Nefertiti's name, most importantly, implies a kind of arrival. The Eti part of Nofret Eti means one who has arrived or who has come. In context, it is possible that this relates to a foreign origin for the legendary queen of Egypt. As you can guess, this theory has not gained As you can guess, this hypothesis has not gained widespread acceptance. Not because it's a bad theory, simply because we have no hard evidence either way. The parallel between Tadu Kepa, a foreigner arriving at court, and Nefertiti, whose name implies arrival of some kind, is interesting. But it could be simply a coincidence. We don't have any information either way. So on that basis, Egyptologists are wary of reconfiguring a major aspect of history. Perhaps information will appear to confirm it one way or the other, but until then, it remains a hypothesis at best. I'll get into Nefertiti and a lot more about her very soon, but I thought I'd mention this hypothesis because A, it's interesting, and B, it's always worth digging deeper into these ancient personalities and confirming whether the traditional, quote-unquote, identification is actually as strong as it seems. Unfortunately, Nefertiti is an enigma either way. She could be foreign, she could be native Egyptian. We really don't have enough information. That's it for this episode. I'll be back soon with the next chapter. In the meantime, don't forget to visit the website, egyptianhistorypodcast.com, for pictures related to the episode. Or follow us on social media. If you're enjoying the show, continue helping it out by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast. Every dollar helps, and I'd be most grateful. Thank you. Life's better with American Family Insurance, because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. 
Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.